afternoon. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so excited to have Julian Levinson here in the studio I'm on living. the show. I'm living. <laughs> You're living? I think so. You're a writer? <laughs> I have enough coffee. I think I'm living. <laughs> Hot damn. It's going to happen. Um, <laughs> thanks to Hugh Stimson for engineering, um, and thanks to the Lazy DJ for bringing us in to the, the Living Hours, uh, the Living Hours, the Living Writers Hour. And uh, thankfully, Julian also kindly brought me a cup of coffee. So um, the brain's going to be kicking in here, Julian, soon. Um, Julian uh, is here today to talk about his book, Exiles on Main Street, Jewish American Writers and American Literary Culture. Um, and I will just start. The, the bio in the back of the book is extremely brief, um, but it's accompanied by a lovely photo. <laughs> Which really says it all. I wish we could beam the photo to people, Julian. I wish I could find the guy who who who's in the picture. I'd have to give him royalties. <laughs> no, I'm joking. No, no. Exactly. Well, it's funny because some writers, when you see them, you're like, wow, what, what photo is this? What, what era from your life is this photo from? Right? Because yeah, they've if seen If I knew you looked changed. like this, I would have never bought the book. <laughs> exactly. Julian's got a million of them. <laughs> okay. Um... Well, just to be serious for a moment, Julian Levinson is the Samuel Schetzer Professor of American Jewish Studies and Associate Professor of English Language and Literature at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. So Julian is one of our own. That's right. Proud to be a Which proud is a to be a Wolverine. Wolverine, yeah, it's a beautiful thing. I became a Wolverines fan. I must tell you, only last year when they lost to Appalachian State. I've been here for eight years since 2000, and I liked college football growing up as a kid, but I got all involved with academia and so forth, and I didn't <laughs> have time, but, and even being here. And when they lost that, if you recall, that terrible yes. upset, it was, it was hailed as one of the most dramatic upsets in college football history, all of a sudden the team had this incredible pathos. Yes. You know? From the heights of victory to the depths of humiliation. And so I became a, an avid fan. I, I, I had to get AT&T to come and hook up my TV. So I've been watching. Ever since. Ever since. And yeah. so is your heart, has your heart been breaking um, this season? And, or, well, you know, we've got sports rolling in right at the end. Maybe we, you could even stay okay. for the sports part. <laughs> of. The <laughs> uh, it's been a tough year, T. It's been a tough year. Yeah. But, you know, the guys, we go out there and we... Uh, we do, give it our best shot. Do you and Lisa take, have you taken the, the family to the stadium or is that something just too, too we many people? We go by, we drive by, yeah. <laughs> we drive by and I say to my seven year old daughter, Hava, you see that? That's the big house. One day I'll take you to the big house. So oh, it's, it's sort of, it's sort of in anticipation, building. anticipatory. And yes. Which is the best, yeah, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> Once you get in there, ah, you know, you can't pay it. You can hardly see what's going on. Someone's yelling, someone's spilling beer. So it's fun to to build it up. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, a, a great place for kids, too. But, um, yeah, so that's so interesting that you were attracted to them when they had the loss. Then you were like, this is, now it becomes something that's real somehow. Yeah, it's filled with real. pathos. They have a, an Achilles heel. They, 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 they're vulnerable. Then every time they win or score, it's, it, it already means something. Yes, yeah. You should also be a, a Cleveland Browns fan then. Is that right? Yeah, I think that you they might just be right up your alley. I'll look into that. I'll Google them. I'll okay. Google them. 
<laughs> but you know what? Enough about football because it's true. Like we're, people will be thinking that they're listening to the radio earlier today, or that there's been sort of another time change. Um, so, so Julian, you grew up on the West Coast, though, That's right. right? That's San Francisco. Is that where those? Up in your, San Francisco. Your... Yeah, my parents were what I describe as the among the early gentrifiers of the Haight Ashbury. Some of the first people to buy uh, tie dyes with credit cards. <laughs> if you catch my drift. What a distinction. That's right. Uh, my father uh, retired early. He was a physicist. My mother was born in Israel. And that's where your grandmother still lives. Uh, my yes. grandmother, bless her soul, she's 95 years old, uh, and she lives in Tel Aviv. Just went to visit her. Um, she was born in Germany. So it's a very complicated Jewish past and Jewish story. Um, on my mother's side, they were the, her parents were both from Germany originally. They met my grandparents, that is, as German refu as German Jewish refugees in Haifa. Uh, where there was a port, and it was then Palestine. This is this is in 1933, and then my mother was born in in uh, in Tel Aviv in 42. Eventually, many many years later, she met my father, who was a visiting professor in Israel, and then he brought her to the States. So um, I have a kind of German Jewish communist socialist Zionist background on my mother's side and on my father's side it's a much more traditional Jewish American story where um, they came over from the old country in the 1890s they struggled it was hard they spoke Yiddish when they didn't want the kids to understand they tried to assimilate into American society where did they settle then where, where? Connellsville uh, Ohio and then eventually, uh, my uh, grandmother was from Scranton, uh, Pennsylvania. My grandfather from uh, Connellsville. I, I can imagine how they said this, you know, or what it meant to them to come over from the old country and, and imagine Connellsville. Con I can hardly say it. I'm not trying to. Right. I'm <laughs> I'll not insult. Echt, echt America. <laughs> and um, so uh, that's a more standard, actually kind of a rags-to-riches Jewish-American story. The riches are all dissipated, but in the 20s and 30s, my grandfather prospered as um, uh, in retail gasoline, actually. Anyway, so my father was uh, became a physicist, though his father had hardly any, um, you know, uh, education beyond uh, early high school. So again, the Americans, like a, a, a success story when people say like what they want for their children, right? It was kind of an American success story. And when my father uh, appeared in Israel um, in the early 60s at the height of the Cold War, and he was a nuclear physicist. That's true. He appeared That's... as something of a, of a sort of knight in shining armor, swept my mother away. Uh, but then he retired early. This is very interesting. He quit. He, he, was, he was completely uh, immersed in physics, but then he quit. Um, this is sort of the uh, a great mystery that I will probably be reflecting on to the end of my days. But um, it's good to have mysteries like that, questions to reflect upon in your family history. Is, is he still alive? My Do father you? died at the beginning of this year. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I mean, he, uh, he was 81 years old. Uh, he died. And um, it was the, the very last conversation I had with him on the phone was to tell him that my twin boys were born. 
Jonah and Elijah were born on January 20th. And two days later, my father could no longer uh, speak. He was um, suffering from cancer and uh, he couldn't handle the chemotherapy and so forth. My father was a wonderful, absolutely wonderful man. It's almost as if he was hanging on then to hear the news of, of, Lisa giving birth to the yeah, twins and yeah, yeah. and now yeah. and so now we've we've and now we have and you've mentioned Hava before how yeah. she's um so there there's the family this I is have three this. children uh, my wife Lisa um, um who uh, is from New York who I met in, in graduate school we took a Columbia? seminar together at Columbia in the symbolist tradition that's, you know, that's, that's love that's going to last. <laughs> I remember her commenting on Baudelaire across the table. That was it. And, uh, and so, uh, and then later she told you that. So that was her regular line. That was like <laughs> when she drew the, <laughs> the men in that's right. <laughs> flowers of evil. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Anyway. But, uh, but anyway, back to, and so somehow they, then your family, your father and mother moved West and that's where, where you, you. Right. They moved west when I was uh, two years old. Mm. And this is important. My brother and I, yeah. In some, well, not only because it's your life and the life of the writer, and that's what we're piecing together here, but you were in Colombia, and and that's where you and Lisa met. But um, you actually took a break from grad school, and you were working on Henry James and Joseph Conrad, some sort of uh, doctoral study of their work. But you took a break, and you went back, you returned to San Francisco. And this is interesting. Because I, I limped back to San Francisco. <laughs> it was, it was, uh, you know, you see these graduate students today, and they seem to know what they're doing, and they're very pre-professional, and they go to conferences, and they seem to have it all figured out. But I was sort of uh, slumming around in the uh, in the seminar halls, and uh, um, uh, I was in graduate school in New York because I wanted to be in New York. I loved li- literature. I wanted to deepen my knowledge. It was my entire life, a literature, philosophy, thought in general, uh, though I had very little idea of where this would all lead. Anyway, where it led at one point was <laughs> away from New York altogether because I didn't really know what I was going to write about. I, I, I um, went back to San Francisco where I had grown up and um, I was working in a music store selling guitars because my other great uh, interest is uh, music and playing guitar and um, I was selling guitars and um, on um, you know unpacking the boxes with the guitars every day at the end of the day you had to stack the boxes up and I, I just going through my mind as I'm you know un, you know collapsing these boxes are, are possible dissertation topics I just couldn't give it up just you know you know Joseph Conrad D.H. Lawrence and the idea of suffering no you know, uh, <laughs> collapsing you know, okay. so this and that and this and that anyway um, eventually, the music store where I worked, the Haight-Ashbury Music Center, burned down. And that's going to be the first sentence of my memoir when I finally get to it. Uh, <laughs> I'm not quite sure how it's going to go. But something about So it's true. The Haight-Ashbury Music Center burnt down. Uh, this was 1997. Um, I uh, stopped working there uh, subsequently and well, <laughs> sort of immersed right. myself more in uh, Judaism. At this moment. And I began um, uh, going to synagogue. Uh, you could hardly call it a synagogue because it was... It was in a, someone's garage. It was someone's right? garage. Yeah, it was... Well, there was... 
You may have heard of the Lubavitcher Hasidic movement. You know, within Hasidism, you have many different uh, strands, and the most well-known is Chabad, which does a lot of outreach. Um, so when you see people um, oh, um, throughout the whole country um, dressed in traditional Polish uh, suits, uh, you know, black suits with beards and yarmulkes, that's the men at least. The women uh, will often be wearing a wig, maybe have long, long, long skirts, maybe have 20 kids around them. Okay. Uh, um, th this is a, um, they do a lot of outreach and that was the, their sort of mandate. And, um, I strangely had had my bar mitzvah with them. I say strangely because my family was actually very secular, but they had a kind of soul to them that for my mother seemed the closest thing to the Jews that she knew. Okay, growing up in Israel, uh, something about the spirit which she learned about on talk radio. She in San Francisco was. A, oh, <laughs> All right, talk radio. We're being <laughs> so can I finish this? Yes, thought? please. Oh, so, uh, what, um, so she's driving in her car. And she listens on the radio, and they're interviewing the new Lubavitcher rabbi in town, the new rabbi in town. And finally, she thought, ah, a Jew, somebody <laughs> who sounds like a Jew. And they were very, very welcoming to us. And my brother and I both had our bar mitzvahs there, which they, they had a synagogue in a renovated fraternity house in Berkeley. They danced, they drank vodka, they were enthusiastic as hell about helping me find my coat when I lost it. This guy says, it's a mitzvah to help a Jew. It's a mitzvah to help a Jew. And he starts running around to find my lost coat. I'm 11 years old. I thought, what is, what is this? This is beautiful. Anyway, that yes, actually, that's that actually uh, set me up for my whole life. I uh, periodically checked in with the Lubavitchers throughout my life. And at this time, I'm um, now flashing back to my post sort of to in the middle of graduate school, I went and spent a lot of time with uh, Rabbi Hecht at the Richmond Torah Center in San Francisco, a great place for wayward people, <laughs> wayward spiritually, uh, what, creative people. <laughs> let's, and let's talk, we'll pick up with that, Julian. We'll take a short break. You're listening to Living Writers. Today on the program, Julian Levinson will be back. <laughs> Me. 
shame you've heard it all before but let me try to explain find me a biz to shame means that you're grand find me a biz to shame it's such an old refrain and yet i should explain it means i am begging for your hand i could say bella bella even say If you're just joining us, uh, you've got Living Writers. And today on the program, um, I'm talking with Julian Levinson, his book, Exiles on Main Street, Jewish American Writers and American Literary Culture. Um, and what you just heard, incidentally, is called Baimir Bistushain, which is was a great hit in 1937, performed by the Andrews Sisters. And it's a swing, big band vocal piece in Yiddish and in English. By mir bistushain means literally to me, you are beautiful. Um, and you can hear in it one of the um, phenomena that I uh, discuss in my book, which is the combination of uh, what we might call traditionally Jewish um, um, contents, um, uh, textuality, language, in this case, simply the Yiddish language and a quintessentially American form. In that case, you have this big band swing format and this song, which is being sung in Yiddish. So it's this kind of old and new, um, at the time Yiddish was, uh, spoken in, in many, many, many households, but it was still, a, it was already associated with the immigrants. It was already associated with what we would call the old country, um, the Altaheim, the old land. Um, oh, that's um, beautiful. Yiddish was sort of, um, or the old home. The old uh, Yiddish was already um, not transmitted as much as the uh, younger generations were speaking English, but it was still known, um, um, still known today, but, but far less, but... And so, because that, and that is interesting, because that is, this is the, what the book's concern is. And and you say that very, um, obviously you say it very well in your introduction, um, but because you're trying to talk about why, why you chose. Don't overstate it, T. Don't overstate it. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You got to dig to find the thesis, but it's, (laughs) thank you. Thank you. Oh, and so we should say that because this, this book that we're taught, your book that we're discussing today, Julian, um, even though you've got memoirs on your horizon and, (laughs) and probably fiction and probably some songs, lyrics and, but, um, but, but this is, you, said more academic in nature because it's dealing with with your 
it's it's grown from your thesis, right? It's, it's exactly this came out of my work from my dissertation um, at Columbia University uh, in the English department, and I was writing um, about Jewish writers in America. Um, this builds on the research that I did for my dissertation, and um, what the focus of the book is is the encounter between Jews and American culture which is a huge topic, which has been dealt with in many w ways before, no doubt. What I do is I take um, a few case studies. I take um, eight or nine individual writers from Emma Lazarus, who was born in 1849. Um, and who met Ralph Waldo Emerson. And who met and, 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 and was mentored and corresponded yeah. with Ralph Waldo Emerson. So there's your encounter with American culture, quite literally. <laughs> Um, I, um, I, um, I talk about Emma Lazarus, I talk about Mary Anton, Ludwig Lewison, Waldo Frank, Anzia Jezierska, a few Yiddish writers named uh, one Yud Yud Schwartz, another Ruven Ludwig, and then two critics, Alfred Kazin and Irving Howe. So some of those names are familiar uh, to many, and some are are not. Some are not familiar to anybody. And you explain why you chose them, too, because they were encountering the, the American culture and using it, it, it transformed their what their literary work was was or became exactly and and so and so there were other people that you mentioned that you you decided not to because their their jewishness or their it wasn't what was impacting what they were making exactly the writers i chose all and their lives follow a trajectory which is similar enough to call attention to itself it's fascinating um, and what the trajectory is even though I must emphasize it's different in each life. But in each case, the writer falls in love with American literature and American culture at large. And you might even say the American idea, capital I. The exhilarating sense that you can start over again. The exhilarating sense that you can invent yourself. The, the, the fascination with possibility and the... A kind of, um, 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 you could say courageous, or you could say haughty, or you could say just out and out arrogant sense that you can throw off your past <laughs> altogether. Um, this was an idea that was Im embodied, you know, in the writings of uh, Emerson, uh, Walt Whitman. Uh, we see it then. Um, infusing American literary culture, even American political culture as well. Um, you know, uh, Thomas Jefferson had this notion that no law should be on the books for more than a generation because every generation needs to reinvent. have the right to reinvent the yeah. structures according to which it lives. In any case, um, so the writers that I that's look so at... That's so interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it's an interesting <laughs> idea. So the writers who I like look at... revolutionary. That's right. Um, the writers I look at became um, enamored with the American idea, but then at a certain point turned towards Jewish identification. Which is so amazing because, Julian, that was also your trajectory too, which is this beautiful parallel. In the Because when you returned to San Francisco, that's where you also, that's when you seem to also return to the Jewish tradition. Right, and, 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 and um, the word return... 
as I use it, is always, if not literally in quotation marks, then meant in quotation marks, which is to say um, the writers who I look at who become self-identified Jewish writers, in the case of Emma Lazarus, for example, when the pogroms break out in Russia in the early 1880s, she begins to write these these kind of incredible, unlikely, very Victorian, but sort of uh, nationalistic Jewish hymns. Um, uh, you And people describe this as her return to Judaism. But she grew up in a very acculturated household. She was very much a self-taught Jew. Um, and so you have to use the word return as a metaphor or as a kind of trope. It suggests that you come from an essential Jewish background, which you can either leave you can reject it or you can return to it. But one of the things I get at it in, in my book is that this Jewish identity uh, um, is always reinterpreted, reinvented um, out of the materials and ideas that exist around you at the time. Just like that song that we read where you have the Andrew sisters yeah. singing <laughs> to a swing song. I mean, uh, to a... Uh, um, um, Taking a break from Bing Crosby. And <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so the writers I look at all follow this kind of trajectory of embracing America and then somehow returning or at least um, projecting themselves as a Jew, embracing a, a Jewish identity explicitly, or simply becoming involved in Jewish culture, defining it, identifying it, in many cases promoting it, um, their own version of, what, of, of, of Jewishness, which in many cases um, borrowed from the American literary culture that they had internalized. But... I'm sorry, one more thing. So so we have writers who identify with America, and then at a certain point, generally at some kind of moment of crisis, a political crisis, a personal crisis, find their way towards some kind of renewed Jewish identity. And when they do so, they also critique the American idea that had inspired them to begin with. Generally speaking, this notion of starting over again, the American fascination with the present, the American rejection of the past, um, the Jewish writer who returns to Jewishness is implicitly saying the American idea is destructive, has a kind of amnesia built into it. It's a kind of extreme fiction that you can cut yourself off from the past so that Jewishness becomes a kind of platform from which to critique the American denial of the past because Jewishness stands among other things for a, a long history, for collective memory, for personal memory, for a sense of being rooted. Even when that even when you there's have to use that as a, a metaphor, right, right, right. Yes. right? Even when there's no ground, right? right? Even when we're in exile uh, uh, in diaspora, um, um, it's it's um, the f the fiction or one of the uh, um, well, one of the great images in Yiddish culture is the golden akate, the golden 
chain that ties you to the past. Now, chain has a very negative connotation, but in this case, it's a beautiful thing. It's a connection. Now, this is not actually um, um, inherited, particularly when you are in America, thrown amongst, uh, thrown amongst the, you know, thrown into this world of um, uh, um, modern American capitalism and uh, and hate Ashbury, uh, I'd imagine, oh, would be something where you yeah, might right. It was, it was. Uh, oh, on the question of my own biography and the work. Um, even academic books, they're biography, they're autobiographies. I mean, because what are you drawn to? Right. right? Exactly. What what becomes what you you must. Yeah, so when you say own. that this sort of has a parallel in my own life, that's true, um, but of course, I think that's true in many, in all academic books, particularly f- first books, probably. Yeah. Well, let's we'll take a break. Um, okay. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. And today on the program, Julian Levinson with his book, Exiles on Main Street. We'll be back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Julian Levinson um, and his book, Exiles on Main Street, um, which is wonderful that the title, because um, you, you just, <laughs> Julian pointed out to me when we were off the air that it's um, Exile on Main Street is the, the album title, but I, uh, the Rolling Stones. There's a record by the Rolling Stones <laughs> called Exile on Main Street. Um, I 
borrowed that, turned it into exiles on Main Street. Um, this I never mention in the book, but it it replic or it reflects one of my points in the book because in my own life I was raised on rock and roll. Um, I, <laughs> A I, good way to be. I, I, I sub. I was also raised on. Um, Oh, my mother is kind of um, uh, very enthusiastic, kind of um, Zionist, uh, spiritual, kind of a spiritual Zionism um, and rock and roll. And it all sort of um, and my grandfather's uh, very scholarly uh, Jewishness. He taught me Hebrew. I um, and um, so which the book, you needed for the bar mitzvah which I needed for the bar, yes, for my for bar sure. mitzvah which he he trained me for my bar mitzvah and um so the way i i sort of use this title from the stones to talk about a book about jews it reflects this notion that you can use that jewish culture is like many ethnic cultures perennially borrowing the uh, uh, the um, cultural forms that surround it or that surround one um, and then infusing a kind of um, uh, new meaning a, a new meaning a kind of ethnic content if you will wow. into it uh, refashioning those forms as uh, in this case a uh, conduit for a Jewish identity Someone's calling me on my cell phone. Oh. Oh. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead, T. <laughs> Julian will now be taking callers. <laughs> We've, I've always wanted to make this a call-in show, so maybe we'll add that in later, sure, Julian. You'll have to come back. <laughs> I guess as long as it's not the family calling, right? You can take it, take it later. Um, I, just before we, we move a little bit further on into the book, because you've mentioned Emma, Emma Lazarus uh, as... The, is the first writer you actually um, spend some time with in the book. Emma. And it's a very popular name now, by the way, Emma. In my daughter's school, everyone's named Emma. Anyway, go ahead. Oh. <laughs> Not for Emma Lazarus, but I, somehow it, it rings true to the uh, contemporary sensibility. That's but wonderful, then. <laughs> She's having a return. No, I won't keep saying that. Um, but it's, it's, it was also interesting to me because she met and, and then subsequently wrote letters with Ralph Waldo Emerson. And, um, but she also was a friend to uh, with Nathaniel Hawthorne's daughter as well, and wrote who became a nun. Who, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, she became a nun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she read her father's <laughs> works and said, "Okay, That's not right. for me." But um, so, so it's this interesting that she had many ties into the literary community, and you were finding her letters, and so you must have been working in archives as part of this process. Yeah, was for it? Lazarus, I looked in the American uh, Jewish Historical Society, which is in New York City, and uh, doing archival work was a, is an absolute blast. Do it. Even if you aren't writing a book, just get into the archives because they, uh, in many cases, put letters and ephemera. You get a real sense of other periods and other lives. You're, if, you're a, if you're at all a voyeur, it's better than the History Channel. Go to the archives on your day off. Uh, but so uh, Lazarus and Lazarus was a very young poet who met. Emerson, who was then the reigning dean of American letters. When she was 19. She was 19, and she was the sort of uh, uh, enthusiastic, uh, impressionable, also very ambitious young poet who, um, who uh, gave Emerson a collection of her work that her father had, had, um, had printed, had published. Um, and uh, Emerson took her on as a kind of a, uh, 
as a kind of a student, um, which um, Emerson uh, did at the time. He uh, he was sort of wont to offer his services as a literary mentor to aspiring young writers, uh, including a, num- a number of women, uh, such as um, Helen Hunt Jackson and Louisa May Alcott and Emma Lazarus as well. Um, and she, in fact, uh, began writing as a kind of American Emersonian acolyte. And you would have never imagined that she would subsequently write these poems about the Jewish soul. I'll just read one example, which gives you a sense of uh, just how sort of Victorian this sounds. And But what's extraordinary here is that nobody had written poems in this language, um, in America at least, about, about Jews. Um, Buried in the bowels of earth, rugged and obscure, lies the ingot of gold. Long hast thou been buried, O Israel, in the bowels of earth. Long hast thou slumbered beneath the overwhelming waves. Long hast thou slept in the rayless house of darkness. Rejoice and sing, for only thus couldst thou rightly guard the golden knowledge, truth, the delicate pearl and the adamantine jewel of the law. This is um, kind of gaudy Victorian uh, stuff, but uh, she was trying to find a language in which to express a sense of a Jewish soul, of a Jewish, um, of a Jewish. Uh, um, 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 specifically Jewish purchase on on truth that she uh, imagined had been kept as a kind of parallel universe to the to the to the Christian world um, um, had been had been held intact she had a, she, she imagined a kind of a Jewish uh, uh, cultural legacy stretching back to the Bible actually and as a poet she imagined that 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 it could it could be her cultural heritage her past. See, Emerson said, turn away from the past. Open yourself to the untapped resources in the present. At one point he says, surely the sun shines today as well. Uh, uh, um, uh, Our age is retrospective, but let us investigate the world as it presents itself to us. Now, this is a very tall order. Uh, throw off everything that's not that's uh, alien to you and this moment right now. Uh, Emerson then presents a challenge. Um, for Lazarus, I think she found a way to respond to the challenge by saying, "My language for truth is not going to be a kind of spirit inhabiting the present, but my language is going to be a language associated with the past and with Judaism and with a kind of Jewish." poetic tradition stretching back now uh she's kind of inventing this notion that she as a as a poet as a largely secular person i mean she she, um could in some sense write in a tradition that goes back to the psalms um but i see this as a response to the emersonian challenge i'm I'm being called upon in America to to write a fully authentic poetry of the present. It's too much. It's too much. It breaks down. I'll go mad. I'm going to root myself in the past. I'm going to root myself in memory and then see the present as connected to the past and then be able to imagine some future. (laughs) So many Americans who become... 
obsessed with the American uh, urge to reinvent oneself, um, kind of lose it. I mean, what are you going to do? <laughs> Where are you going to look? You're going to look inside so deeply that there isn't going to be anything else there. I think there's a nihilism inherent in the Emersonian challenge. Emerson, uh, actually, you know, uh, there's a letter, in, um, no, an early journal entry um, by Emerson, who we think of as a great optimist, but in the journal entry he says, uh, this morning I was, I was nihilizing. He, he invents this word to nihilize as usual. And he, 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 he had very dark moments too, Emerson did, even as a young, uh, a young man. In any case... Um, I think that that's completely necessary to get to that, what, what the joy that he does write about, because otherwise there would be, or that the finding beauty in those directives of his, yeah, you know, right. like, I think that's not, wouldn't be possible if it wasn't coming from this, um, seeing the emptiness right. <laughs> or so it, it's, um, cause I thought it was interesting with each of your chapters too, Julian, you start with, um, like the, a lovely, lovely, of course, chapter title and um, subheading to to ground us in what's going to come, but then also an epigram too, and with some a bearing on it. And with this one, it's Emma uh, for Emma Lazarus's chapter. It's Emma Lazarus and the Muse of History, and it's a letter that she's writing to her friend Rose Hawthorne. Uh, Lathrop and it's when and it must be I imagine that it's a letter that you found in the archives of her work and it's talking about how the experience where she feels like she must seek she must know Hebrew like she it's the moment where I'm imagining that you thought this is where she decides that she's going to re-envision the soul of and connect the Jewish soul in the past and yeah this is a letter um, I uh, I have to confess that um, somebody had actually collected her letters before I got to it but, oh, okay. but no it's okay thank you for for saying that, but um, um, uh, um, uh, I have to give credit where credit is due. Um, we'll we'll take a short but, break, and then oh, maybe we'll, okay. we we have to take the break, and we'll be back, and and then we'll hear we'll hear some more from your book. Oh, good. Um, Julian Levinson's here today. Exiles on Main Street. I'm T Hetzel. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. We'll be back. Welcome 
Welcome back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. And today on the program, Julian Levinson, with his book, Exiles on Main Street, Jewish American Writers in American Literary Culture, um, published this year by Indiana University Press. Um, Since you mentioned this letter from Emma Lazarus to Nathaniel Hawthorne's daughter, let me just read this little section. Um, That would be wonderful. Uh, And as I said, I didn't find this in the archives. Uh, A woman named Bet Roth Young did incredible research um, um, to sort of unearth these uh, Lazarus's correspondence, which shows a woman who was deeply involved, embedded in the in the in the cultural world of uh, late Victorian America. Um, um, even though she, um, her first biographer sort of described her as this real retiring uh, spinster type woman, like uh, Emily Dickinson, but actually she was a public intellectual. Um, anyway, here's a letter that she writes um, in 1882 um, when there had been an outbreak of violence against Jews, the pogroms in Russia. And um, 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 this was um, uh, of great concern to Lazarus and 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 others um, in America and, and, of course, elsewhere. And, um, and uh, she herself uh, became an activist at this time and began, um, uh, she, 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 uh, she banned it together with a group of uh, uptown New York um, acculturated American Jews uh, who had some money, and they uh, began to try to raise more money to actually uh, begin to resettle Jews from uh, Russia in in Palestine. It was kind of an early Zionism. Um, th- her project sort of fell apart, but here's... Um, a sense of of her um, writing to Rose Hawthorne Lathrop in 1882. The Jewish question, which I plunged into so recklessly and impulsively last spring, has gradually absorbed more and more of my mind and heart. It opens up such enormous vistas in the past and future and is so palpitatingly alive at the moment, being treated with more or less ability and eloquence in almost every newspaper and periodically you pick up, that it has about driven out of my thought all other subjects. I have reached the point now where I must know Hebrew. So when you act on behalf of a group, in this case, her fellow Jews from, uh, from Russia who were, um, who were being persecuted and who were, um, you know, seeking, um, some kind of shelter elsewhere. Um, uh, her impulse was not only to help them to act philanthropically, but also to learn Hebrew. So it's a sense that you often have it in some of her poetry of, um, the American Jew and the East European Jew who both stand in need of some kind of help, who both are drawn, who are both going through some kind of test, and in many cases moving towards one another. Um, in any case, so I wanted to, to say that about, about her in that letter. And, and so, and now... Um because this is what, I mean, this has just been so great talking with you this hour, but I feel Thank like you. it's been great talking with you too. <laughs> um, we, but we were, we've been kind of meaning to, to get to this, which is, um, some, some Walt Whitman in Yiddish. So uh, could the, you tell us uh, about it? Julie? Sure. So the, um, I, I write it in the book about, um, 
Jewish writers in America who use English, who were raised in English, and some of whom only knew English, um, but also about Yiddish writers, people who spoke Yiddish as their everyday language, who were um, immigrants from uh, Russia or Poland, and um, who were developing in America a vibrant Yiddish literary culture. poetry, uh, uh, plays, novels, uh, songs in Yiddish in America. Uh, New York City was the, you know, the site of a kind of Yiddish cult, uh, a Yiddish literary efflorescence in the, uh, um, just after World War One and in the 20s and uh, the great hero. And in Greenwich Village. And in Greenwich Village well. and in the East Village and in the, the, the Lower East Side. The, um, a great hero of Yiddish writers in America was Walt Whitman. Walt Whitman. <laughs> um, Whitman did not enter the American literary canon as an unquestioned genius until much later, until the late 30s, uh, some say. Um, but interestingly, amongst the Yiddish writers, uh, 20 years earlier, even 30 years earlier, Whitman was already seen as the great hero. And they read Whitman as a socialist prophet, as a prophet of a, of a revolution in human relations, uh, somebody who didn't stood... he self-promote that way as well? Sure, um, because sure, he was... sure. He would have, he would have, he would have loved this. He would have, he would have <laughs> recognized himself entirely. Except that they uh, tended to impute more uh, ideology. Um, he was never Whitman himself was never drawn to the emerging uh, sort of communist uh, ag- agitation and sort of he was he was uh, uh, an American patriot through and through. Whitman remember died in 1892, so uh, this was all just sort of a, kind of a growing revolutionary spirit in Europe. Whitman was thoroughly American, and um, but then they brought this infusion. Exactly, they in many cases uh, brought him into a more ideological setting context people who were um, revolutionaries um, in many cases saw Whitman as their great uh, spokesman and they saw themselves as uniquely positioned to understand Whitman. Why? Because Whitman spoke not only as a kind of socialist prophet, but also as a kind of biblical prophet, as a figure from the Bible. And whatever else uh, Judaism might have stood for it, certainly stood for a c- connection to this biblical heritage, even though the poets I'm talking about now, the Yiddish poets in America, were often thoroughly secularized, had thoroughly rejected any kind of religious observance. And yet they um, identified with this biblical heritage, seeing it as um, separable from the dogmatic or religious legal traditions. So... The Yiddish poets in America loved Whitman, translated Whitman into Yiddish. And in, when you translate, you're always trying out models for yourself. You're always bringing a foreign language writer into your own language and finding a language to, f- to fit that writer. So translation is a great thing for practicing writers. I mean, I... I've tried some translation and I've thought this is great because, you know, even if you can't come up with a poem, you know, you translate someone else's poem and you're actually writing a poem Mm -hmm. when you translate. Um, It relieves some of the burden of originality. (laughs) 
You know, oh, that burden. Oh, that burden. <laughs> yeah, that burden. So all of you go out there and translate. Even if it's you don't true. know the language you're translating it, from. Um, <laughs> T.S. Eliot said he read Dante's Inferno in Italian before he knew Italian. And he said he loved it. <laughs> and then he learned Italian. He said... It was He said it was the same uh, <laughs> a pleasure. In any case, uh, I thought I would read a few lines of a translation of Whitman into Yiddish. This is translated by Lewis Miller, a kind of neo-romantic um, um, Yiddish poet. Um, this was published in 1940 uh, by a press called the Yiddish Cooperative Book League of the Yiddish International Workers' Order. How's that for a name for a publishing house? Um, they didn't have stationery, probably, or business cards. I don't know. Right. It wouldn't. You, you, you couldn't Google it. You couldn't Google it. But that's it. And anyway, um, I'll read it, and you'll see how th- how it felt. Um, um, how they sort of um, imputed a kind of socialistic, um, revolutionary spirit to it. This is from a Whitman's poem, a Pioneers, O Pioneers. Um, uh, uh, um, okay. Mir reisen sich herein in a Welt neuer, a mächtige, an andersticke Welt. Frisch und stark is unser neu verhabte Welt. A Welt von Marsch und Arbeit. Pionieren, O Pionieren. Now, literally, the Whitman reads, All the past we leave behind, we debouch upon a newer, mightier world, varied world, fresh and strong, the world we seize, world of labor and the march, pioneers, oh, pioneers. Instead of saying world of, oh, well, world of labor and the march, yeah, he translates it literally, a Welt von Marsch und Arbeit, a, a world of marching and work, but it, it evokes the the workers movement it, uh, translated in the 30s as this was it evokes the world of labor organizers strikers um, 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 uh, not the the America that Whitman uh, observed and and loved not the great uh, outdoors of the open road and the uh, the world where uh, uh, leaves of grass are sprouting freely but rather the kind of urban world of uh, um, uh, Workers um, and so forth. Anyway, um, when the Yiddish poet writes, "Mirreisen sich herein in the Welt neuer," you know, we uh, 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 we latch onto a new, an entirely new world. It 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 has within it an interesting tension because the Yiddish language in America is redolent of the old country. It bespeaks. An older world. Uh, in the 1930s, th- the children of Yiddish speakers were acculturating, speaking English. So to use Yiddish, which is associated with the past, in order to strike out towards a new world, um, there you have something of the paradox of Yiddish and Jewish revolutionary activism, because there's a sense that what you're bringing forward for, that you are you are breaking through to a new world, which is also a realization of the dreams from the past. So 
it keeps alive a sense that our struggle in the moment is a struggle for generations. It's a struggle that has been engaged in for generations. It's a struggle that has been envisioned, that has been engaged in for generations. Um, in many ways, uh, that was already foreseen in the uh, uh, in the biblical uh, Psalms, uh, for example, a kind of yearning that we see in the biblical prophets. And it's very different to act in the present as a kind of emissary from the past. I think you ha- are emboldened in certain ways and you might act with more responsibility because even as you're smashing the structures that b- bind you, you recognize that there are ethical imperatives carried from the past. Um, and it also seems then, to because it's coming forth and there's this this connection but it seems like it's it's a pushing and 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 there's a guarantee of the future then too so it is that there's something to come as well right and it's which is american too right which would be that uh, aspect of it because yeah go ahead i'm sorry i'm sorry well at its at its best and what i try to distill here a kind of a jewish radical impulse that remains connected to a Jewish past contains a corrective against the kind of extremism and kind of apocalypticism that besets many revolutionary movements, which often dissolve into violence and kind of a lack of, of, of direction. Um, if you maintain a sense that you're, you're an emissary from the past, you're speaking in the name of a long history of dreams, of, of dreaming, and of suffering and of triumph, then you have a kind of defense against the excesses of a kind of revolutionary, we could call it a kind of a nihilism that comes in when your revolutionary dreams fall down. So it's a sense of, uh, of continuity. And, and that's the critique of America also, because insofar as America wants to throw away the past, it loses the, uh, the grounding for a certain moral uh, vision, which is rooted in a sense that the past gives you. I think the uh, rootedness in the past gives you a kind of sobriety. I'm not the first person to live. I'm not the first one to have these thoughts. And I won't be the last one. Yes. So we'll carry the fire. There you go. Julian, thank you so much. Gee, it's for been being such a pleasure. <laughs> thank you. Come back. Come I back. I hope all of you are doing well out there in Radio Land. That's right. Drive safely. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Kiss the kids. <laughs> And hi to Lisa and the family. And um, and this, you've got sports coming up, everyone. Thanks again to Hugh Stimson for engineering. And thanks. Oh, yeah, Julian. Which I wanted to say the king is gone, but he's not forgotten. From Neil Young, another uh, great kind of image that, that I had in mind as I was uh, writing the book. The king is gone, but he's not forgotten. Um, that's uh, what a kind of a secular uh, a Jewish culture at its best, I think, uh, retains. Well, that's wonderful. It's wonderful. And this is... This has been Julian Levinson on Living Writers Today, his book, Exiles on Main Street, Jewish American Writers and American Literary Culture. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time.
Henny, back to pass. He's going to roll out to his right. Throwing in the end zone for Arrington. Caught. Touchdown, Michigan. Takes the snap. Looking to throw the near side. Now he's going to go far. Over the middle. He's got a man. Caught. Touchdown, Michigan. Adrian Arrington wide open in the back of the end zone. Over the middle. And Michigan marches right down the field. No problem. They have the lead again. It's 37 to 35. Four wide receivers. T-bone and shotgun. Moore lined up to his right. He's going to throw for it. Pressure coming. He's rolling to his left. Still looking. Still looking. He's going. He's throwing down. He throws up a prayer. He's got a man. And it is incomplete. Michigan's going to win the 2008 Capital One Bowl as Lloyd Carr's last game as the University of Michigan head football coach. You're listening to the Daily Sports Report on WCBN 88.3 FM, your home for Michigan sports. And as you can tell from that last clip, Michigan was in a bowl game uh, last year at one point, two seasons ago. And uh, last year, three and nine year, not in a bowl game. That's what we remember. And uh, it wasn't pretty. No. That's true. (laughs) But good signs today as it was signing day for college football. All the recruits, high school players around the country signed their letters of intent to the school. And Michigan got 